Here's a few words with Adam McFadden of Firehouse Training. Hey, Adam. Hey, Scott. How's it going? Going good, brother. Pretty busy these days. Yourself? Yeah, good. It looks like you got the busiest month I've seen yet coming up. What do you got online? Yeah, things have been pretty crazy lately for Firehouse Training. Uh, you know, we've had a good few months with some online training events, and we recently got back to some in-class training at our facility in Fergus. Some of the events that we currently have coming up in September, we've actually started a new initiative and a partnership with TBRNE University. For those of you out there, you can find them on Instagram at TBRNEU, where basically we're going to be doing micro-training and live virtual stimulation events. So basically, it's a micro-course for uh, 90 minutes. Thursday, September 10th, we plan on, through the University of CBRNE platform, putting together a live hazmat call. It'll be geared towards professional firefighters, firing firefighters, and those first responders in the industry, as well as those working in the spill response industry, too, where they could come out and take part in a live call where we'll look at different strategies and tactics to mitigate something that you'd see or find on the street or in industry. Awesome. That sounds like something I haven't seen before. Yeah, with CBRNE University, it's a micro-learning event, so we're looking at doing a low-cost, effective, and hands-on scenario-based platform for those professionals. We've teamed up to provide cutting-edge software application support and even live instruction for these e-learning events. So various calls that we might cover include uh, you know, effects of a spill in the environment. We'll discuss risk-based response initiatives and hazmat and CBRNE, different types of chemical detection techniques. Do some basic scene safety and size up for various events that we might encounter as a first responder, and also some mitigation and control tactics that are available that different fire departments have too. So should be a lot of fun. The cost for that is $99. And we've had some good feedback, especially from the professional responders from across North America who are jumping in and just looking for those extra training opportunities that they might not be getting through their own fire department. Seems like there's even more stuff coming up. Why don't you expand on that? Yeah, we actually are back to running our career coaching days at our training facility in Fergus. So on these days, they're ideal for aspiring firefighters and first responders looking for some extra help when it comes to resume and cover letter preparation. We're also offering test tutoring, either for our municipalities or their written NFPA testing uh, for students that have recently graduated from their boot camps or pre-service firefighting programs. We also conduct mock interview prep and also some practical skills training for those that are doing some hands-on testing with some of the local fire departments. So again, that's going to be on Sunday, September 13th, and we're looking at having a full house for that. One event that we're really excited for this month is our Flammable Liquid Tank Fire Strategies and Fire Extinguisher Training Course. Now, this course comes from uh, the oil and gas industry, where we work on mitigating flammable liquid fire hazards. We're talking about different tank fire extinguishment tactics and dealing with foam operations training and even calculations when it comes to many different types of events that we would see in the industrial sector. So whether it's a gas plant or different facilities that have large tank farms of different products and chemicals, this course is going to be very important when it comes to conducting pre-incident planning and even incident command scenarios should we respond to that as a firefighter. So now that should be a good one. Again, that's Flammable Liquid Tank Fire Strategies on Saturday, September 19th. Check out our website for that. Again, lots of good feedback on that course. We've ran that in the past, and we're really excited to run it again here at the end of this summer. Interesting. You're always approaching things from unique angles. Yeah, I mean, especially in today's fire service, you know, we're responding to different events. I guess you would call them a low-volume, high-acuity type call. So it doesn't matter if it's a hazardous materials call or a high-rise fire or some type of specialty rescue. There's always the type of events that do lead to the extra training that we need to make sure that we're on our best when it comes to responding to those emergencies.
We actually have a mutual friend of ours too, Michael Sell. He'll be running a course for us through his company, Inner Fire Academy, at the end of September. And that's going to be a belief to fire chief career webinar training event. So his program is going to be spot on when it comes to dealing with different types of empowerment and thoughts and belief and the different types of gratitude mindset that we can have as a firefighter and first responder when working through the fire stations or even responding to calls out in public. So again, Michael will be joining us at the end of September. That's going to be Sunday, September 20th. Some of the different topics we'll be talking about, things like the importance of resourcefulness and ensuring success as a firefighter, taking action and understanding your own importance of vision and direction and going back to that, um, you know, we can mindset and really empower each other to just stay positive on the job and also maximize the skill sets that we already have as firefighters. So I'm excited for that. Even myself, I'll be a student for Mike's work and we look forward to having him in on Sunday, September 20th. So check out our website for that. Yeah, he's a solid guy. I'm going to try and make that as well. Yeah, it's going to be fun. You know, I'm excited to see what he puts together for that. And again, just be a student along with all of our other firehouse training students. Also, Scott, we recently added some online training courses to our portal. So for those that haven't checked it out yet, I highly recommend it, whether you're an aspiring firefighter, a full-time firefighter, a police officer, a paramedic. There's many different courses that we have on our firehouse training online website that you can help fulfill your career succession planning and also give you some extra learning and skill set for your time on the job. Some of the different courses that we have include emergency response preparedness, recently added transportation of dangerous goods, chemical safety. We've added some coronavirus to pandemic training, and they recently conducted some defensive driver training, which was a great success and had some great feedback, not only from those trying to become firefighters, but those that are currently working full-time, even as a paramedic and police officer. So. Yeah, that course was a couple of weeks ago and had a great turnout for our defensive driver training. So we're going to be looking to run that again. Sometimes I wonder if you actually get any sleep in the week. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we like to work hard here at Firehouse Training, but I got a great team now that helps support us, including yourself, and just realizing that there's a need for this training. I mean, right now we know uh, a lot of the students are going to be going back to school and participating in, you know, not only in public school and high school, but those that are participating in the various firefighter boot camps on pre-service firefighter training programs that are going to be starting up again this fall. And just some things to consider. Always putting your best self forward and looking just to stay safe and then study hard. You know, you want to keep fit. And and I just ask those students out there and and even those who are currently on the job, continue to review your IFSTA, continue to review your NFPA practical skill set and stay up on that training. And if there's one thing that firehouse training can do is, you know, help increase that participation and positivity when it comes to continued learning and continued training that a lot of us enjoy, but also need to keep our skills up on the job. So again, good luck to everybody out there going back to school this fall. Hopefully it's safe for everybody. Welcome to Multiple Calls, episode 28. I'm Scott Hewlett. Those that truly seek to add what they can to the knowledge available to the members of the fire service place the knowledge above themselves, detached from their ego. They understand clearly that what they have to offer has been built upon pre-existing work, 
whether it be by previous or current fire service members, or those outside of it, such as scientists and engineers. They also know explicitly that what they have added onto or reimagined is based upon what we know to date and will inevitably demand additions or reimagining again. This is how we ensure a positive progression. We create, question, break apart, and rebuild. And what remains is the most current truth. This requires intelligence, curiosity, humility, selflessness, wisdom, foresight, and a successor with the same desire and character traits. This is the case with Dave Dodson and his program, The Art of Reading Smoke, and this episode's guest. The proper student appeared when the time was right to pass the torch, and the proper encouragement, support, mentoring, and trust was offered to allow the knowledge to evolve and continue. This is the essence of someone who shares information. They know at their core that they are the medium and not the message. It's my privilege to introduce you to Rob Backer. Okay, you want to get started? Sure. So start off by telling me a bit about your upbringing and your family structure and where you grew up. I was born in uh, Illinois, southwood of Chicago, uh, in a town called Kankakee. Uh, it was a farming town at the time-ish. I think it's gotten a little bigger now. My dad was uh, TV sales and repair, and he kind of took a leap of faith and packed up me and my mom and moved us out to the Denver area when I was about five months old, hoping that he could land a job in the up-and-coming telecommunications industry, and that worked out very well for him career-wise, so we've been in the Denver area pretty much until I was five months old. I'm not technically a native. That's something that's somewhat important to Coloradans, but uh, I have been here most of my life. I've got two uh, younger twin sisters, about two and a half years younger than me. So it was just us in Colorado. All my mom and dad's family was back in Illinois and some of my mom's and actually my dad's family eventually moved to different parts of California. So it was just us and we didn't have any extended family to really quickly rely on. It worked fine, but we didn't get to see grandma or grandpa every weekend or, or any kind of Sunday supper type of deal. It's usually like once a year, once every other year, depending on whose side of the family. But we were pretty close with my mom's side. We would frequently take road trips to California, Illinois to see them. And sometimes they would come to Denver. And those were always road trips. Pretty much equidistant either way from the Denver area. It was like 15 to 18 hours in the car. And it's me and my two sisters in a minivan. And my parents were kind enough to take out the center bench seats. At the time, it was socially acceptable to have kids sit on the floor during a road trip but still extremely long stretches. More often than not, my dad, kind of impatient like that, he would just want to knock it out. So it was like 15, 16 hours straight in the car. But because of the whole TV sales and repair background, way before it was a thing, he was manufacturing these frames to sit within the two front seats where you could have a cooler with drinks and snacks. And on top of it, he'd secure a TV and a VCR. So we at least had movies to keep us somewhat entertained and sane along the way. And eventually we got to the point where uh, we actually had a PlayStation for one road trip. And I still remember playing games with my sisters on that. But now that I have a family, I think the longest road trip we've taken to San Diego a few years ago when my youngest was four months old, I insisted on my wife taking a flight out to Vegas and we would leave earlier and pick them up from the airport and then continue so that it wasn't 16 hours in a car for them. But we've also just gone to uh, some of my wife's families in South Dakota middle of nowhere pretty much and that's just a 10-hour drive but between tablets and smartphones and flip down dvd players sometimes i have to look back and make sure i didn't leave a kid at the gas station uh, there, there's something right now it's, it's fun <laughs> so it's actually somewhat enjoyable but we've got my wife Jared and i told the three kids when we first started seeing each other she already had mckenna who was three at the time that we started dating and mckenna's father tara's ex-boyfriend uh, horrifically abusive to Tara during their 
relationship. So through dating and then getting to know Tara and hearing the things that she would say about what happened, and she's never someone to play the victim card at all, but hearing how he would treat her and things that she'd been through was shocking to say the least. And one thing it did help me with is completely understanding and I don't know about sympathizing, but at least empathizing the whole concept of battered women's syndrome and, and how they feel that they can't leave a toxic relationship. So through that relationship, she became so convinced that she was lucky to have anyone at all. You would always tell her that she's too fat, she's too ugly, she's lucky to have him. She developed a lot of, I would say, understandable self-esteem issues. I mean, we've been together now for 13 years, and she's still got some self-esteem issues today. So I've always been of the opinion, you know, after learning about her, that there's a special place in hell for guys that treat women like that. And I've got no sympathy or compassion for anyone like that. He was never, to my knowledge at least, abusive or anything like that to McKenna. But to him, McKenna was always a chess piece to be played for leverage to try and continue to control Tara. So he was never really a dad. McKenna wound up asking Tara about three months into our dating relationship if she could call me dad. So that meant a lot. And our relationship kind of progressed pretty quickly. It was one of those things where uh, when you know, you know. So we were more or less in love from the beginning. He, of course, was not a fan of that. So he would continue to tell McKenna that we were brainwashing her and we're telling her a bunch of lies and kind of just bringing her down to his level. I've never been anyone to back down to a bully, for better or worse. And because of all his anger issues, there were a lot of restraining orders, plenty of court appearances. He would constantly file motions to try and have his child support reduced, even went so far as challenging paternity. A lot of frivolous claims that we had to handle in court. But a couple of years ago, probably two or three years ago, he uh, mercifully finally just kind of gave up and doesn't talk to her anymore, doesn't try and fight over her anymore. So McKenna's been happy in our household pretty much from the beginning. So I've been dad from the start with McKenna. And about a year and a half into our relationship, Brayden was born, my first son. And at the time, Tara was one of those people who was born to be a mom. So Tara just wanted to keep having kids. But I had always grown up in a household where uh, due to a lot of just good fortune, every kid had their own bedroom between me and my two sisters. So the idea of two kids of mine sharing a bedroom was kind of a, an absolute non-starter. You know, once we have enough saved up and we can get a bigger house, house with more bedrooms we can have more kids so Braden was born in 2008 so he's turning 12 this year but that's also when the financial crisis happened so house values plummeted took a long time to build the value back up to a point where we could sell it for enough of a profit to cash in on the house that we wanted in a better part of town with great schools so Kendall the youngest she wasn't born until 15 and even though we moved down to uh, where we currently live now in Castle Rock in 2013 life is busy and you just lose track of time and so uh, Tara and I never really had a baby conversation. So Tara decided to spring that one on me on her own. We, <laughs> we sent McKenna and Braden off to school one day and she sits me down and, and goes, okay, promise you won't be mad. So immediately I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not playing this game. And she goes, well, I decided that it's time for us to have another baby. So we're pregnant. <laughs> and that's how I found out about Kendall. <laughs> so I'm currently right now, and it's 16, Braden's 11, he's about to turn 12, and Kendall's about two months away from turning five. So I've kind of joked with everyone that it's somewhat annoying because as soon as one kid's out of diapers and they're somewhat independent, we're starting all over again. But now we know we're done with Kendall, so it's also a little bittersweet every milestone she hits. And 
he's about to start kindergarten and be in school full time. So it's a little bittersweet, but it's also fun because each kid's in their own age group and has their own attitude and their own interest. And I kind of just got a driver's license. So that's resulted in a lot more drinking on my part in my life. <laughs> and Braden's transitioning into that age of detaching a little from his parents, wanting to be more independent. And Kendall's starting to become super social and understand the concept of friends and play dates and a little more independent as far as transitioning from a toddler to a young kid goes. So I guess you could say I'm kind of living the American dream. So good of you guys to stay strong and soldier through all that stress. There has been a lot of stress as a result of it, but being on the other side of it now was definitely all worth it. Family is the one thing that you never give up fight for. What were you like as a student? My mom, before I was born, she was an elementary school teacher, so education was huge for her. When I was born and then my sisters not too long after, she more or less stopped teaching to stay at home. My dad made enough money that we were in a bad fortune of a position. Once we were old enough to stay at home, she would occasionally pick up a day as a substitute teacher here and there, but you know, never anything permanent or, or long term. But because of that, you know, not only did I have school when I was in school, but I kind of had my own personal tutor if I needed it when I was at home. So as a result, school, I guess, again, I was lucky. It just kind of came fairly easy for me. I was pretty much a straight A student throughout high school, literally like a B here or a B there, maybe two or three Bs total in high school. I graduated high. I did well there in large part because of the emphasis that my mom would put on education. And I had a knack for math and science in particular, tend to pick up on things fairly quickly. My parents tried to put me into sports and see what I liked and what I didn't like and fell in love with basketball at a young age and got pretty competitive with it. But by the time I was a sophomore in high school, I was kind of frustrated with it, a little burned out and coincidentally just took a class in high school. They called it athletic training and it was pretty much anatomy, physiology, biology, all rolled into one and learning how to treat injuries, prevent injuries. And the school actually had a program where if you had passed the class with a high enough grade and enough recommendation from the teacher who was the school's head athletic trainer, you could sign up to be a student athletic trainer and help the various sports teams travel with them, be on the sideline with them. And, you know, if there was ever an injury or anything, you could treat it to the extent that they would let a high school student treat it. So spent a lot of time with the girls' softball team, basketball team, and the girls' soccer team, in addition to, I think every trainer had to be part of the football team. So what I found doing that was I really enjoyed helping people. And when something went super far south in my world as a high school student, then they kind of, you know, look to you to help. So in addition to that, there was, you know, a lot of socializing with the teams. I was genuinely enjoying the feeling of helping someone when others can't. So I started asking the head athletic trainer at the school, like, hey, what kind of education do I need to look at post high school? And what are the career paths? What different things can I do with this kind of a skill set and interest? He was super helpful and mentored me with those decisions and recommended some different college programs. And fortunately, uh, in Colorado, at least at the time, the University of Northern Colorado, which is about an hour and a half north of where I was growing up, actually had one of the best athletic training programs in the country. So I did still tour a number of other schools and several out-of-state schools. But in the end, between the academic program and reputation that Northern Colorado had and come to find out that they had most of the amenities that the bigger universities had, at least what I was looking for. And since it was a smaller school, there was no lecture hall with 500 students in each class. And the professors tend to know everyone's name-ish. Classes were usually no larger than 20 or 30 students. I decided to go there. But what wound up being a huge impetus was 
because of how well I did in high school academically, by the time I hit my senior year, I had pretty much all my core requirements that I needed for graduation. Still need all these other credits, but I can pretty much take whatever class I want. And the school had an internship program whereby seniors could kind of select an industry that they wanted to tinker around in. The school would do what they could to set them up with an internship in that arena and then you'd spend four days a week half the day uh, with this internship and because i had met all my requirements i had a high enough gpa i actually had enough opportunity to take two internships so you know one each semester so what i decided was i'm dead set on going into sports medicine so i definitely want a sports medicine internship but i also want some internship that I could just screw off in and have no responsibility and just have fun and enjoy it. Uh, One of my friends at the time, big into snowboarding, so he somehow got set up at some snowboarding manufacturing company. (laughs) And he was just like, yeah, we don't do anything. We just hang out and shoot the shit all day. So I was like, yeah, I want that. I want to do something like that. I don't really have an interest in snowboarding, though. So uh, the local paper had actually featured a senior from the previous semester who had done an internship with Littleton Fire Department. And there was a picture of her wearing bunker gear and standing on the tailboard of the engine. I was like, well, that sounds cool. Who wouldn't want to ride around on fire trucks? So I tell the internship coordinator, yeah, I want to do sports medicine. That's what I'm going into. And yeah, I swear I'm interested in firefighting. I'd never thought about it ever before. But yeah, I'm interested in it. So she got me hooked up with Littleton Fire Department. We had a closed campus at the high school, but four days a week, by the time it was like 10.30 or 11 o'clock hit, I had this free pass to leave so I could go home for lunch and then had to be at the fire department, their administration office by, I don't know, like an hour or so later. The first week of that internship, it was all in administration. It was meeting all the staff, meeting the chiefs, understanding the difference between the chiefs and learning about all their responsibilities and some general office work. And they told me there's going to be bigger projects where I on a couple for you that are going to take some time and, and we'll figure out a, a big capstone project for the end of the semester. But they also said, you know, we want you to do one ride along every week and we'll arrange in advance instead of coming here you'll just go to the station and you'll ride with the crew and we'll tell the crew you're coming. They'll know who you are. They'll know to expect you. Very first ride along, they tell me, go to station 12. The department at the time had two truck companies and one of them was out of station 12. So I leave school that day. I go home, grab lunch, drive to station 12. And as I walk in, the bay doors are open and the crew's all out the bay and there's like a group of 30 kids. Someone on the crew sees me walk in. I have a Fulton fire department polo shirt on and they kind of break off and quietly introduce themselves. Hey, we're wrapping up a tour. They'll be out of here in like five minutes. And then I'll introduce you to the rest of the crew. And right when he says that, overhead tones start going off. And again, like I have no fire service experience. I didn't grow up in a fire station or anything. So I have no idea what's going on. But the entire crew now is hustling, trying to not quite physically shove the kids out of their way, but encouraging them to get out of the bay because they got to go. They got to call. And they're shuffling me over to a door at the cab and saying, here, get in. Put your seatbelt on, sit in the seat, and wear these headphones. Okay. And then within the blink of an eye, we're out the door, tearing down Broadway, and I still don't know what's happening. I don't know what we're going to. I I don't know what's going on. And everything's just kind of flying by as a blur. And you can sense the crew's amped up, but they're also very, very calm. And even though they're excited, they're also in complete control of what's going on. One of them tells me, like, yeah, we're going to an apartment fire. So when we get there, just stand by the battalion chief. They're first in to a small apartment building, and there's smoke showing from the third floor, and this crew hops out, and they're gone. 
maybe three days experience in fire administration with the staff chiefs. I don't know what a battalion chief is. So I alternate between sitting in the cab and standing right next to that truck because I don't know if they're going to leave or what. I don't want to get left behind. So I'm watching the crews going to work. I have no idea what's happening. I just know that it looks so cool. They are so coordinated. That term that we hear, controlled chaos, other rigs are flying up and they seem to be parking in certain places. And, you know, this engine's driving past these two trucks, the spot right here, and this SUV's pulling up and angling in at this point. And no one's getting out and getting in a big huddle and figuring out what's going on. They're all just getting off and going to work. And at the time, I don't understand radio traffic, but it was like watching an artist do their thing with how smooth everything went, at least from my perception. And before you know it, the fire's out and they're kind of fist bumping and high-fiving at the rigs. You know, at this point, 20 years later, I obviously understand radio traffic and tactical assignments, but the lessons learned that day, they're still true that the team coordination and the comprehension of duty and commitment are so intrinsic into the fire service. You can have two stations or two crews that absolutely hate each other or guys within the same crew that do not get along and they are not friends. But when those tones drop, that all stops. And until that fires out, we're all on one team and we're one family and we're all on the same page no matter what. So that call wraps up after an hour or so, and we drive back to the station and the crew is getting all their gear back in order. And I kind of flip a switch and I'm like, tell me everything I need to know, because that was amazing. And that was fun to watch. And I want to do that. And they were helpful. I rode at all eight stations. And then I probably over the course of that semester rode with all three shifts. And looking back, it's both amazing and hilarious how every person who was at Littleton and every person that I work with now and every firefighter that I meet when I go around the country, you can always pick a guy out. You're like, oh, yeah, that's just like this guy at my department. Oh, this guy even looks like that guy at my department. So the crews at Littleton, they were a mix of everyone that you find in the firehouse today. The same personalities. And some crews, when I'd go ride with them, they'd say, hi, come on in, have a seat at the table. And they would not say a word to me. And if I asked a question, it would be a brief one-word answer. Like, it was painfully clear that they did not want me there. I was a burden to them. And there's always a guy like that. There's always a crew here or there that's like that. And then there were other crews that literally would put their arm around me as I stepped in through the front door. And they'd answer questions that I didn't even know I needed to ask. And they'd point out stuff. And they were super helpful. I remember both the good and the bad of that. And that has shaped how I view rookies in the station or ride-alongs or citizens that stop by station tours. And I'll get some crap sometimes from guys who are like, man, you just won't stop asking that ride-along questions. You won't stop asking that cadet questions or showing them stuff. What's wrong with you? Well, I know what it was like to be the guy sitting at the table that no one's talking to. When you don't know anything, so you don't know what questions to ask. So I want to be helpful, and, and I want them to walk away thinking, what a great place, what a great crew. And I don't let it get sappy, but maybe this person is at some fork in the road and they can go down the path that I took and just fall in love with the fire service. So they go down another path and that might all depend on how we treat them today. So I don't ever want those ride-alongs or students or whoever, I don't ever want them to feel like they're a burden to the crew. But the time with Littleton was awesome. And another thing that I didn't realize the gravity of at the time, but this big capstone project that I had to do for the end of the semester and have this big presentation lined up for all the intern students and their families and their sponsors at this evening reception, the Littleton chief staff was like, hey, you know what, how about we give you the task of summarizing Littleton Fighters' response to the Columbine High School shooting, because this was all about a year and a half after that happened. We were kind of going down that path of how does a high school student do an after-action reporter or something like that. And, you know, one day I go in there and I had some ideas and some flowchart 
concepts in my head and they're like, oh, never mind, we can't do that. <laughs> my guess is that the city's legal department caught wind of it and they were like, hell no. There's so many investigations and probably lawsuits going on that we're not giving call information or anything that might be classified to some high schooler. But look at what these chiefs wanted to do. They wanted to take a prospective firefighter or someone who was super interested in the fire service at least and show their faults, show their successes and say, what can you learn from it? What can we all learn from it? And we'll wear it all on our sleeve. We're not going to try and conceal anything or hide anything. So at the time, you know, that was such an unprecedented event that I think shook the entire country. And it would have been a really cool project, even at a high school level. Sadly, now there are national standards and best practices for those kinds of incidents. But at the time, what I didn't realize that I do now is here's a bunch of firefighters, even though they have multiple bugles and they're in the office, they want to share, they want to teach, and they want to help. And I walked away going, you know, what a cool place. Firefighters are awesome, but I'm still going into sports medicine. The next semester, my school set me up with the Stedman Hawkins Clinic, which is a very highly respected and reputable uh, orthopedic surgeon and physical therapy group in the Denver area, so much so that they had the contracts for all the surgeries and rehab for the Denver Broncos and the Colorado Rockies. So I would go to this office and I would kind of shadow the physical therapist all day with orthopedic injury recovery. And there would be professional baseball and football players in and out all day. They'd say, oh, you know, Dr. So-and-so is going up to Vail to do a knee surgery on this athlete or that athlete. And then they'll be down here tomorrow to do their initial rehab. And they were extremely helpful as well. One day they took me to the uh, operating room to watch an ACL replacement. And, you know, my big project was to follow that patient all the way from first consultation to surgery to recovery and kind of sending them out the door when he's good to go. So that was awesome. And I got to pick everyone's brains about career paths and education requirements, job opportunities, and professional athletes were in and out of there all the time. And some of them were super friendly and you got to talk to them. But what I realized as that semester started to come to a close was this is still a job and it's not something that I really look forward to, but crap. Uh, I've already kind of committed to going to this school for sports medicine and kind of having this midlife crisis my senior year of high school, or at least the summer after of what am I going to do? <laughs> and uh, then it was like, well, idiot, why don't you just do firefighting? That seemed like fun, right? Like none of the guys there complained about it. None of the guys there were in a bad mood that they were on an engine or a truck or anything like that. So all of that sounds like fun. So why don't we do that? So I reached back out to the chiefs at Littleton and said, what do I need to do college education-wise to be a firefighter? Because I think I'm going to be in. So they said, you know what? Do a public administration degree. You can't go wrong there. And UNC didn't have public administration, but all their public administration classes were in the political science realm. So did a major of political science, but I knew I wanted to be a firefighter. And political science, at least at UNC, was a lot of philosophy classes and a lot of history classes and it just did not jive with what I wanted to do at the time as a hard-headed college kid. So school became a burden and I didn't look forward to school. I wanted to get it over with. I took the first semester like, hey, let's see how hard college is going to be. It's definitely different than high school, but it's not backbreaking labor. So after my first semester, I took a full class load at UNC, but I also enrolled at the local community college to get both my EMT basic and my firefighter one certifications. And then you know, UNC is surrounded by farming towns. So as I'm going to this community college to get my firefighting certification, there's a whole bunch of people 
who are in the same boat as me, but they're already on with this volunteer department or that volunteer department. So I got to pick their brains. You know, why are you with this department? What do you like about them? What you don't like about them? And, you know, where should I apply? And can I still be a student at UNC and also volunteer at this department? I kind of found a department that I thought would work for me that bordered Greeley, where UNC was, and got on with them as a volunteer. And that was a lot of fun as well. But we got this college burden. And with my mom's background as an educator, dropping out of college, you know, I'm a grown up at this point. She couldn't have prevented me from doing it, but I knew she would have been really disappointed. And you reach a point as a kid or transitioning into adult, you're like, that's the worst thing in the world is to disappoint my parents. So I'm going to stay in college. So rather than kind of just drop it and pursue firefighting full time, I, I kind of buckled down and up to my class load and I stayed up there to take summer classes. And so I, I wound up knocking out my bachelor's degree in three years. So during that time, the last year and a half or so of college, spent some time volunteering as well, which was a blast that is not going to be capable really of ever being duplicated again because it was right before and right during NFPA 1403 being implemented, which is all of the regulations on live burn training. And so this volunteer department, they had their own burn building and they had not yet adopted 1403. So I got a lot of fire training that you just cannot get anymore. And it's understandable, but still, it was a phenomenal education. So were your parents okay with the pivot as long as you finish your degree? My mom, very much so. I mean, they didn't use the same words or the same phrase, but it was very much a figure out what you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. And it doesn't matter if you're making seven figures or the low five figures. If you're happy uh, and you're doing what you love, then you're not really going to care about the salary. So they were very supportive of it. And you know, 9-11 happened my first semester of college. And I knew at that point, even before then, it was the summer after I graduated high school. They're like, I'm 100% I'm on firefighting. And they were supportive. And, and then, you know, my mom, being a mom, started getting a little super anxious about it. And, hey, this stuff's real and bad things can happen to firefighters. I think she did a pretty good job of concealing most of that from me. I think it still worried her to some degree. But they were both very supportive of me doing what I enjoyed. Was athletics and hobbies important for them too? Yeah, it was. My dad was a pretty good athlete, football and wrestling all throughout high school. So he was a pretty decent athlete. So they started putting me into sports when I was in kindergarten. And we tried baseball and, and we tried football. And I wasn't great at them. They weren't terrible, but I also just wasn't in love with them. When I was in third grade, they plugged me into basketball and I immediately fell in love. I was always typically the tallest kid in the class or even in the grade. So I had this inherent advantage with basketball and maybe that instant success is at least a little bit why I fell in love with it. But I uh, continued playing. It was really just rec leagues through elementary school. But after I was done with elementary school, my mom got a phone call from one of the coaches of a team that we would play against frequently. And he said, you know what, I'm putting together a competitive team. I'd like Rob to be on that team. So we went to this informational meeting and she was a little apprehensive, but I was so in love with basketball that I didn't care if I didn't know any of the other kids on the team. And I was the only kid on my team going to play for this competitive team. You know, we'll get to know them. So bit the bullet and we did that. So for two years throughout my seventh and eighth grade, we were driving all over the state really doing competitive tournaments every weekend just about, plus practice two or three nights a week, which was a lot of fun. And I loved it. I loved all of it. And we were never the best team, but we won a lot more games than we lost. And we were always kind of in the final mix for every tournament, as far as I can remember. 
we weren't really getting blown out. There were a couple of times that, Hey, let's, you know, scratch the itch and see if we can play a division or two up. And, you know, you get kids in uh, grades two or three years ahead of you that would just smoke you. And, and, you know, we learned which lane we were supposed to be in and, and we stayed in it, but it was a lot of fun. And this coach in particular, his name was Jim Wright. He was just a parent of another kid on the team, but he had a college basketball background as an athlete and was also at the time coaching some much higher level competitive teams as well. Some high school level teams with legitimate college aspirations. And I, I know at least one of the guys that he coached did go to play several years in the NBA. So in the sky knew his stuff and he was extremely intense. So there was games and practices, lots of screaming, lots of open displays of emotion. And my mom wanted to be that protector and, you know, no one's allowed to yell at my little boy. I think she was a little put off by it, but she held back and didn't embarrass me at all. My dad, it was probably what he was used to growing up was those coaches who will be in your face and screaming, you know, they're red in the face and an inch away from my face when they're telling me what I did wrong and how I need to step it up. And so it was a lot of pushing me to do better, pushing me to work harder with a lot of loud volume. So that coach would push me and my dad would push me. Sometimes coming home from a game that we won or a doubleheader that we won, I might get a polite earful, but uh, a little bit of an earful from my dad on, yeah, you won, but you guys got lucky. Here's what you did wrong. You need to do a better job of this. Your technique needs to improve there and your focus needs to do this and that. So looking back, all of that was so beneficial. And, you know, my mom has always been kind of a counterbalance to that of, you know what? You won. You had a good game be happy with it. And my dad was more of a, you know what, you won, congratulations, but you need to get better. The next team's not going to roll over like that. And you can't let your foot off the gas. So some people would say, oh man, nothing was ever good enough. But I knew I was good enough for him. And he was pushing me because he knew I was capable of more. So certainly between the coach and my dad kind of helping out with those critiques and that constructive criticism, it set the foundation for me for those high intensity situations that are loaded with stress and loaded with consequences. And, you know, when you're 12 or 13, the biggest consequence is going home or not with a trophy. And that's what was available to me at the time. And now the, the stress and the consequences are, are much more real world, but the foundation was set. And sports was what there was at the time to really bite off on. And so I, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And that lasted for two years until high school basketball. Once we were in the high school basketball, it was all the same kids who were on my competitive team. You know, we all grew up, you know, seventh and eighth grade together. Now we're in ninth grade freshmen and, and we're all on the freshman level team together. And that's where it started to get disappointing because the high school coaches, you know, God bless them. They don't have the same level of knowledge and coaching ability as this competitive coach we just got done with. So the intensity is not there and that's what we're all used to. And that's what we all fed off of. So these guys, they were teachers who were great guys, great teachers, and they're just kind of coaching on the side. So the two years we had prior with this competitive coach, even though he was just a parent, coaching meant something to him and it was important to him. And even if he wouldn't overtly say it was mentoring kids and bringing them into a better place and teaching them how to grow up and molding them into men, that's really what was going on. And so we kind of got that. And then we get into high school and it just kind of stops. And it's just guys who are, you know, go out and put forth a good effort and we're good classic example it was my freshman year we have one game we're in some sort of holiday tournament and we're playing a team that we would regularly meet up with in these competitive leagues and we would regularly smoke them 
And you know, it wouldn't even be close. And in this freshman year, we're losing by 20-something points at halftime. The offense wasn't working. We're getting abused on defense. And this is the same team that we've mowed over two years in a row. So in the, the halftime huddle, we kind of begged the coach, can you please, please shout whatever words of encouragement, but can you please let us run our offense and our defense from our previous two years? And you know, the coach is like, you know what, go for it. Because nothing that I'm calling is working, so you guys go ahead. So he led us, and we wound up winning that game by double digits. So in hindsight, it was kind of an omen of what was to come at the high school level. The high school coaches just did not have the same competitiveness or the intensity or even the knowledge that I had been receiving from a really solid coach for the last two years. The drive and the inspiration just wasn't there. I certainly don't want to make it sound like it was someone else's fault that I stopped playing basketball because it's not. But not having that leader there to stoke the fire kind of made the flame go out. And if I could go back, I would have absolutely kept playing my last two years just for fun. Just enjoy playing basketball on a really competitive level because you're not going to play in college. You're certainly not going pro. So just enjoy high school. Enjoy playing high school sports at the varsity level. But, you know, it is what it is between that flame kind of going out for basketball and and kind of firing up for athletic training and sports medicine at the time, I made the switch and chicken myself like, Rob, you could have done both. You know, basketball is only three months. You could have done athletic training and basketball, but I was just too dumb at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Those two voices of your mom and your dad, the celebrate what you did well and the other voice of here's what you could have done better. Do you still hear those two voices when it comes to firefighting? Absolutely. Growing up in Thornton Fire Department now, and I would venture to say it's like a lot of departments, any fire that goes out and any fire that we all go home, we did a good job. But let's also take a look at where could we do better? How can we improve on this? It's been one of the struggles, and I'll offer it up because I I would imagine it is not at all unique to my department. No one's ever had a perfect fire. We have never had an after-action review where we say amongst ourselves, we can't think of anything that could have gone better or any decision that we could have made differently or quicker that would have resulted in a higher level of efficiency or effectiveness or safety on this call. Like there's always something. And usually there's always like a dozen things that you can pick out and say, you know what, we could have done better here. The disappointing thing is it's not hard at all for us amongst ourselves to find, hey, you know what, so-and-so should have done this and he didn't, screw him. And it's a lot harder for people to be able to say, you know what, I screwed up, or I didn't do it as well as I could have, or as quickly as I could have, or here's an oversight of mine. And by no means am I trying to brag, but rather to offer advice, I figured out at some point, you know what, if I raise my hand and offer up everything that I think I could have done better, I'm taking away everyone's ammunition to attack. They can't attack me if I've already offered it up. Back in the day, maybe 10, 12 years ago, that was gold. And I think the department now and the guys within it, we've evolved to a level of efficiency and maturity to where we can say, I think we can have an after-action review where we're not throwing stones in a glass house. Or hopefully there's an understanding that I might ask you, why did you do this? And that's not a question of judgment. That's a question of, it's not adding up in my hand. That's not the decision I would have made, but that doesn't mean that I'm right and you're wrong. Help me understand your thinking and what you thought at the time. And if I can understand where you're coming from and you understand where I'm coming from, the next call is going to go smoother no matter what, because we're going to have a better feel for each other. And I can anticipate your moves and you can anticipate mine. So it is nice to have that counterbalance of you did well. Here's what we did well. Here's where we can improve. Here's not necessarily what we did poorly, but here's what we can do better with next time. 
and also just being vulnerable to offer up what's going on in your head. It just shows that you have self-awareness, you reflect. It teaches other firefighters around the table that it's okay. They know that you care. Absolutely. And I can't speak for everyone, but at least for me, particularly when you're a firefighter transitioning into becoming an officer and, and those first couple fires, as we would refer to as an out-of-class officer, where you're, you're not a promoted company officer yet, but you're filling in for someone who's on vacation or sick or whatever. Those first few out-of-class officer fires where you're first due, you're terrified of the after-action review. <laughs> and you're like, I'm going to get ripped out. And so you just start as a defense mechanism. I need to figure out everything I did wrong. I need to ask the crew everything I did wrong so that I can get out in front of that and either have an answer for it or an explanation. That's certainly not the most worldly view to take, but however it happens, I've at least been able to, and the department has been able to evolve to a much better place of understanding of nobody in the entire fire service worldwide comes into work going, you know what? I really feel like mailing it in today. If we catch a big job, I'm going to put forth like 30% effort, and I'm probably going to intentionally violate policy. Like No one does that. And as soon as we can all acknowledge that and understand that everyone here wants to do a good job and everyone here made a decision that they felt at the time was the best decision, we can chat all day professionally about why you felt that was the best decision and whether or not it was the best decision in hindsight. So that's where things get really productive. And I appreciate being surrounded by guys who can have that kind of candor and that kind of honesty with each other. And that's what makes the smoke reading classes so great too, is when someone's not afraid to offer up an answer, even though they're pretty sure it's wrong, because it fosters discussion. And from discussion, if we're all mature and we're all professional, we're all going to learn a lot from each other. You mentioned Coach Wright and your parents as mentors. Anyone else that you can think of? Yeah, my parents, obviously. You didn't have to ask for anything. If they saw you needed something or if you said you needed something, you know, you had it. And that Coach Wright laying the foundation for the competitiveness, for the drive, and being able to stay calm, cool, and collected in stressful situations. For the last three years, actually four years now, I've been coaching my son's football team. And this started when he was in first or second grade. We signed him up for a flag football team, and I had no interest in coaching. My background is in basketball anyway, not football. So we put him on this team and, you know, rec league. And, and the coach is some poor parent who, you know, checked the box saying, I'm willing to help out. And this poor guy was so far in over his head that, like, even the practices were painful to watch. And over the course of eight games that season, the entire team got one first down. <laughs> and no points. And it was just painful. And you could tell Braden wanted to have fun and he was kind of having fun, but he also knew he was getting his ass kicked. So it wasn't that much fun. So that was in the spring. And a couple weeks after that league ended, we were at a local outdoor festival with all the food vendors and we're walking around and there's this flag football league that has a booth there and they have NFL logos all over it. So go up and talk to the guy because I like watching Braden play football, even though they were terrible. So how's your league different? And this guy kind of lays it out. And one of the cool selling points and even Braden's eyes kind of lit up a little bit is since this league was affiliated with the NFL, he wasn't just going to be some generic team name like the Tigers. It was going to be, no, you get an NFL jersey, a reversible jersey, and you're going to be an NFL team, you know, air quotes. So we're like, yeah, let's, let's try this other league. Maybe it'll be better. And as I'm filling out the application, I half jokingly ask the guy, can I request certain teams? Because in my mind, as a Bronco fan, like no son of mine's ever going to play for the Patriots or the Raiders. And he's like, you know, if you sign up to coach, you get to pick the team. And that box is right there. And I just, without thinking, I just check it. 
hey, we'll email you and you know, we'll be back and forth and we'll figure everything out. And uh, as I walk away, my wife's like, this is the dumbest thing you've ever done. Like, you hate kids. <laughs> you know, any kid that's not yours, you hate them. I'm like, yeah, but like, you really want to watch him put on a Patriots jersey all summer. And, you know, we set up the team. And, of course, the Broncos were taken. So, you know, I had to look at Brayden and be like, what other team has really cool colors that you want to do? And so he picked the Falcons so we could do black and red. As this season approaches, this is going to be so bad. Rob's not good with kids. He does not like them. And it's all going to go up in flames. So we have a couple practices. And I politely beg any parents that want to help to help me. And a couple dads, you know, step up. And one of them actually points out, like, you know, these seven and eight year olds, they understand a lot more than you think they will. You can draw up plays and here's a great website for actually drawing up plays and they will comprehend them. Trust me. And so we do it. And you know what, for a bunch of seven and eight year olds, like they're not doing terrible. So we come into our first game and I'm kind of excited. The atmosphere is a lot cooler with this NFL affiliated league. They have a little more money. So there's music and food stands. So it's cool. We get on the field and we just get smoked. <laughs> And it's like, here we go again. And we scored like 20 points, which was awesome, but we gave up like 40. <laughs> so it wasn't awesome, but all the expectations are out the window. But then we wind up beating every other team in the league and we're winning every game except for that first game that we played the Cardinals. And because it was a summer league, there weren't as many teams. So in order to get eight games in year, I think there were a total of four teams in the league, maybe five. But the point being that we had to play the Cardinals three times. And they beat us three times. And one of the games was close, but the other two, they smoked us. So as we go into the tournament weekend, everyone in the league, even though they won't say it, like all the parents know, like it's going to come down to these Falcons and the Cardinals. And after these preliminary round games, we were winning and parents from the other teams would come up to us and say, please, please, please beat the Cardinals. Their coaches and their parents are so loud and obnoxious. You guys, you're very encouraging. You've given high fives to other players on other teams when they score. You guys deserve to win. Please don't let us down. So now we have their expectations on our shoulders too. So of course we meet the Cardinals in the championship and these kids play their asses off and they put their hearts out there. Their defense is just lights out a couple lucky bounces, tipped balls that we catch or intercept. And we have the ball with a minute and a half left and a five point lead. Me and the other parent coaches were of the opinion, we are not taking a knee. Like we're going to run actual plays, let the kids play, let the kids decide who wins. This isn't the pros. I'm just calling plays and we're running them. And at that age group, the coach is allowed to be on the field with the players as long as he's not in the way. So we're in the huddle and calling plays. And then now it's going to be like fourth down and three yards to go to get the first down. And I've forgotten about the time. I call the play in the huddle. We go light up. Ref blows his whistle. So I'm immediately heartbroken because I think I just lost it. Like I, some kid lined up off sides or something. It's a penalty. The other team gets the ball for the last play. But the game's over. So we win by five. We just won the championship. It was amazing. The parents who, for the most part during the season, maybe they gave a smile and a nod to each other. Like, I think that's Kevin's mom. The parents are jumping up and down and hugging each other. And we go to this mom and pop ice cream place to celebrate afterwards. And all the parents are coming up to me. They're like, Rob, we got to do this again in the fall. We got to do it again. You got to coach again. We got to keep the team together. Let's do it again next season. So we did. And that core of the team is still together. And it's been like nine seasons and four years. And we started doing family nights out where all the kids and all the parents get together for some fun. We're doing, you know, parents night out where we have the kids at home and we're going to a bar together. But what I've gotten from that team, from those kids, is the team always has 
a couple of kids who are just plain genetic lottery winners and they're athletically gifted and they're studs. And then there's also a couple of kids who are more liable to chase butterflies around than to catch and run. And, you know, everyone else is somewhere in between, but they've all taught me the patience and the teamwork from a leadership and a mentorship position that you can't just put the ball in the studs hands every time these are kids let them play give the ball to everyone and so we have these team goals of hey going into this season you know the goal is everyone gets a touchdown at least one there was one game where Braden was playing quarterback and it was a fairly tight game and we had our stud on the field or, or one of our studs and trying to balance that so a kid or two out of the five who are not as athletically gifted and we're at the three yard line about ready to score and for whatever reason the defense these poor kids on defense blew their coverage and our stud is wide open and depending on whether or not we win this game determines a really good seed or an average seed for the playoffs and Braden just rifles the ball and I've never seen him throw it so hard right to the not athletically gifted kid into double coverage for whatever reason they double teamed him it hits him so hard in the chest that he can't drop it and he scores a touchdown amazing yeah and it's awesome and so after the game i'm like hey Braden, so great play but uh why'd you throw it to him and not the stud who was wide open and he goes we didn't have a touchdown yet this year he said we had to make sure everyone gets a touchdown oh wow the kids get it they've taught me they teach the parents or, or i won't speak for the other parents they're teaching me the humility the patience the teamwork the camaraderie when i've checked the box to be a coach i couldn't stand kids you know i can tolerate my own pretty decently but other people's kids i'm not a huge fan and now it's totally opposite i go to battle with those kids any day of the week and twice on sunday they're awesome and i love them like they're my own just about so they've all played a big role in shaping who i am today and understanding that other people have other perspectives and other people have other priorities you know this kid has intent on going to college and being the next tom brady and this kid doesn't even really want to play football and he's only here because his parents made him but damn it we're going to make sure he gets a touchdown this year so from a thirty thousand foot view that's really it's no different than between coaching and supervising firefighters because firefighters are all kids who haven't grown up yet so managing the kids has taught me how to manage the adults and i'm definitely a better company officer today because of those kids they've played a huge role in shaping who i am and how i handle things today and it's got after school special written all over it i don't like saying it because it sounds so savvy but it is and it's because of all the crap going on right now that you know our entire spring season got canceled <laughs> and it's just been like when can we go play football again we need to get the team together and go play football again because it's so much fun the importance of it is more tangible than ever yeah absolutely it's one of those things that you know we tend to take for granted and then when you don't have it you're like oh damn i missed that next time i see those kids every one of them's getting a big hug next time i see the parents every one of them's getting a big hug and you know the next time the referee makes an absolutely horrific call they're going to get a big hug because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just going to be so nice to have that back yeah i'm wondering if more people are going to realize that being present moment and being grateful is something special it absolutely is and unfortunately if we hear it if i had known then what i know now we would have been doing this a lot sooner if, if I had known how rewarding it would be and how much fun it would be and how, you know, we have a second family now with, with all the football parents and the football kids. It's been awesome. What jobs did you do before the fire service? Before the fire service, I had that super competitive basketball going on for a while and too young to work at that point anyway. But once I was done with basketball, my first job was just store clerk at a party supply chain store. And it was as bad as you can imagine. Nothing but different themed party supplies and helium balloons and Halloween costumes. And it didn't seem terrible at the time because 
since it was my first job, I had absolutely no basis for comparison, but I wound up quitting that job and got a job as a cashier at Arby's because Arby's was paying like a dollar fifty an hour more. And when you're 17 years old, you're like, oh, shoot, making it rain. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm rolling in dough. And I stayed there working the drive through and filling fry orders until I went to college. And my parents insisted that I do not get a job my freshman year of college because they did not want me to be sacrificing grades for a few bucks an hour. So they're like, if you need money, we'll give you money. Focus on academics. Let's see how that plays out. And then you can figure out if you need a job. So got to the point where it was like, you know what, by the end of the second semester, I finished that EMT class and the Firefighter One Academy and hey, mom, dad, I can take on a job. Absolutely. So was fortunate enough, UNC had its own police department and as such had its own dispatch center. And I was able to get a job as a student dispatcher. At this point, I know I'm going to be a firefighter. So dispatching was pretty much the best and most relevant thing I could do job-wise to help pad the resume a little and get some experience that I wouldn't be necessarily emergency services, but at least be emergency services adjacent. Plus, I didn't have to stand for eight hours and I didn't really have to interact from a customer service standpoint in my mind. You know, you are over the phone, but I don't have to deal with the Karens coming to the desk asking to talk to the manager. So that was nice. And I stayed at that job until I graduated dispatching the the local cops typically to uh, loud dorm room music and minor, minor stuff. And then as well, I think one summer, because the class load uh, was fairly easy, I worked at a Quiznos as a sandwich maker for about six months. But as graduation was nearing is when I started putting in applications for career departments. And at the time, we still had a lot of the post 9-11 shine to the fire service. So the fire jobs were extremely competitive, several hundred applicants for just a couple of spots. And I knew from everything I had read and everything I had heard, like it's going to take a while to get hired. You're probably not going to get hired your first go around. So I was looking at other dispatcher jobs and both Littleton PD and Littleton Fire were both hiring full-time dispatchers. I was like, oh, sweet. Put an application for both of them and go through the interview process. I advanced to a, a final interview with both of them. And, and oddly enough, fire department said, no, thanks. And PD said, yeah, we're all on board. Come on in. <laughs> so uh, it was both the same salary and they're in the same room. So it wasn't heartbreaking or anything. It was just funny. Uh, but in the end, PD was better from a dispatching standpoint because they are always significantly busier than the fire department side. So there's a lot more action going on, a lot more high drama here and there. And But what sucked about it was literally my first day as a dispatcher. And I had my little orientation meeting with HR. I'm sitting at the dispatch console and they're showing me around and doing the baby steps thing. And and my phone rings and it's Thornton Fire Department saying, hey, how soon can you start? And uh, I felt bad. Right now. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I literally told them tomorrow. It was like 4.30 in the evening. I was like, I can start tomorrow morning if I have to. So they said, okay give us a couple of days, we'll get back to you. And I don't know if it was like later that week or next week, but it was like three or four days later. They called and they said, you know what, talk to the chiefs. And by the time we get you in here for a background check and a medical test and the necessary hoops uh, to start your employment, you'd be like a month and a half behind in the academy. And that's if there's no delays. So what we're going to do is run another academy in the fall and you'll have a spot there. If you're still interested, we'll call you back. Okay, cool. So then there was five months of sitting at a dispatch console knowing that I'm going to be getting a phone call sometime. It's happening. And so I didn't enjoy the time dispatching as much because I knew there was something better coming up. From there, it was Thornton Fire and been there ever since. And what was your first exposure to the fire service before all that? Way too young to actually remember it, but When I was an infant out in Illinois, my dad was on the volunteer rescue squad out there. My mom tells me that he would throw me in the front seat, take me on calls with him. 
it being, you know, early 1980s, I'm, I'm not entirely confident in it, but we're going to assume that I was in a approved safety seat and, and secured appropriately. <laughs> uh, but I was going on emergency runs literally as an infant who was a couple months old. But aside from Littleton Fire, when I was in college, once I had my Firefighter 1 cert, I was offered a position, you know, went through the application process and Evans Fire Department offered me a volunteer spot and they're a suburb right on the south side of Greeley uh, where UNC was. So at the time, it was a pretty much an all-volunteer department and they had a 40-hour-a-week daytime firefighter who was paid and I think the fire chief and a training captain and the secretary were paid. My first day, you know, I went out and I bought some sweet side zip boots and some blue pants so I can look like a firefighter and they give me my t-shirt and there's a couple other guys at the station and the paid guy puts his arm around me, welcomes me, starts showing me around, shows me everything on the rigs. Hey, when we get a call, if we get a call, you know, here's going to be your expectations. And the way they ran things at the time was a two bay station. One bay is the engine and next to it in the other bay is what would probably classify as like a medium rescue. After an hour or two, we get our first call. And you had to stage your gear in between the two rigs. And then depending on the nature of the call, that determined which apparatus you took, or at least which one was taken first. So first call's a gas leak. That's a fire call. So we're taking the fire engine. So I get all my gear, grab it, arm loads, trying to crawl onto the engine and and as the engine's screaming down the street, I'm throwing my gear on and I look around and I can't find my helmet. <laughs> and so I'm telling the pig guy, I'm like, uh, hey, um, I, I don't, I'm sorry, sir. I don't, I, don't, I can't find my helmet. He's like, ah, oh, don't worry about it. You won't need it for a gas leak. And as long as we don't get a structure fire before we get back to the station, it'll be fine. You probably just didn't pick it up when you grabbed all your stuff. So we're sitting on this gas leak and it's just like a, a furnace that needs to be inspected. Not a big deal. Of course, they taught a structure fire. <laughs> so... Now it's, okay, ma'am, your, your furnace is fine. We got to go. And now I'm sitting in the back of the engine with bunker gear on. I'm putting an air pack on, but I know I don't have a helmet. So I, I don't know how useful I'm going to be, but that call wound up being nothing. So I didn't miss anything. But then when we get back to the station, there's the training captain sitting there in the bay holding up this flattened helmet. Uh, <laughs> and it turned out that as I piled all my gear into my arms, got out of the engine, that helmet fell out and wound up being under the rear dual axle when we left the bay. So my very first call, I crushed a helmet. But I was with Evans for 18 months until I graduated college. I tried to find a way to make it work to where I could still volunteer there and work full-time in Littleton. But it's a 90-minute drive and didn't have enough time to make that commute. So I rescinded my volunteer position. But the time at Evans was awesome. Like I said, they had their own burn building. So literally every Saturday, probably 50 or 51 weeks a year, they would do live burns in a class A building. And because at the time, in hindsight, 1403 had just come out, the burns there, I can safely say, were not 1403 compliant. So it was always bales of hay and pallets that they would then soak in a 50-50 gasoline diesel mixture. And then if there was a couch on the side of the road, so we're throwing a couch in there or, hey, you know, I got a new bed, so here's an old mattress. Like we'd throw that on the burn pile. And they would burn all day, every Saturday. They'd start at eight and they'd probably shut it down around seven. And they'd order pizza and have sodas out there because that's the penultimate rehab food when you're <laughs> dehydrated, you know, is to have salt and sugars. <laughs> but we would do things like, hey, we're going to light this off and just lay down in the burn room and watch the fire grow. And we're not going to put it out until we can't stand the heat anymore. Certainly not safe. And in hindsight, stupid ideas. But at the same time, I saw more fire behavior and more fire growth in those 18 months of getting to play with fire in what is now a not acceptable method 
I don't know that the fire that I've seen since in training in 15 years of paid career, the live fire training we've had doesn't compare to what I got in those 18 months because this was real fire growth. This wasn't a class B burn building where the fire goes out when you hit the switch or class A with just a couple pallets. This was legit low mass synthetic foam that was going up and getting close to flashover within a minute or two. It was amazing. Yeah, there's no way now, like you said, that people get a respect for what they might be dealing with until they get in a real situation. It's really too bad. I totally understand why. And I think deep down, no matter how much we all want to say big, tough firefighters should be doing big, tough things, I think we all understand why the standards are there and the expectations are there and we all get it. But it's true. If we're hiring guys now that don't have any experience prior to them getting on with us, those first few fires are going to be unlike anything they ever encounter in the academy. We can kind of build up heat. And if we get a class A burn building, we can build up some heat. And especially as the day goes on, that building's going to retain some heat, so it's going to get warm, but it's still not going to be like, this is how a couch or a mattress or a true room and contents actually burn and how quickly it grows. We are unable to duplicate that now. Yeah, it's tough to balance those scales of keep you completely safe now and you're really not safe because of what you don't know later or control danger now and control danger later. Absolutely. It's understandable, but it's also frustrating because I think now at least from a fire suppression standpoint, our rookies need more help and guidance and supervision. If you hire a rookie that's got five years on somewhere else and been through a number of fires, that's one thing. But one of the last rookies I had almost two years ago now, he had a week on as a volunteer when we offered him. (laughs) So outside of the academy, which was a class B burn building, had never been in a fire. And so the first fire we had together was a single wide mobile home that it got pretty freaking hot. And uh, there was a while there where on the tick, it actually looked like someone was kind of slumped over in the middle of the floor. I, I thought we had a victim. So there was an increased sense of urgency. It was a particularly warm fire because those things are, are just matchboxes. As we're uh, kind of recycling, changing our packs, you know, it's all kind of settled down. The fire's been knocked down. We're kind of in overhaul mode. I kind of look at them like, uh, how was it? It's like, oh, it was fucking awesome. <laughs> so things like that are fun. While they're not coming in with the experience and the uh, understanding what a real structure fire is really like, you know, seeing that glow on their face after their first fire is also a lot of fun. What was the process of getting on like for you? My last semester of college, I started submitting uh, applications to career departments because, like I said earlier, I think my parents still would have supported anything that I decided, but I think their hope was that I would finish college and finish my degree before I jumped into a career just because if you leave college when you're 20, 21, 22, how easy is it for you to go back 10, 15 years later to finish it off? Like my dad starts his career and stopped going to his college literally two or three classes shy of a degree. And so that's always kind of bugged him. So I'm going to get my degree. I'm not leaving early. So my last semester, depending on when departments who were hiring said, this is about when our academy is going to start. I was trying to match those up with a graduation date to make sure it wasn't going to pull me out of school early. And in the Denver area, there's a written test that even though it's like an application, a written test, it effectively serves as an application for, at the time, it was 17 Metro Denver area departments. And then when those 17 or any of those 17 departments are hiring, they can pull names on the list with whatever parameters they want, whatever score criteria they want, and then kind of call you and say, hey, we're hiring. We'd like you to come test with us. And since your written test is already completed, all that's left is an oral board interview and potentially a physical agility test if that department's not accepting a CPAT certification. So I was contacted by Thornton and one of their neighboring departments as well. And I also applied to a larger department south of the Denver area at about the same time. So going through a testing process with all 
three of these departments at the same time. And I did well in all of them, but in, in all of them, I can pinpoint the question that I bombed. And of course, in hindsight, you're like, why did I give that answer? But the one that bugged me most was one of the departments, and it, it wasn't Thornton, <laughs> but uh, uh, one of the departments, their oral board gave me a question, said, so you're a rookie in the station. And one evening you're mopping the floors while the rest of the crew watches TV because you're not allowed in the TV room while you're a rookie. And all the senior guys on the crew, everyone who's in the recliners, they're all complaining about this recent city council decision that they feel adversely impacts the fire department. And the captain or the lieutenant turns around out of his recliner and he asks you what you think of that policy. And so what's your answer? And you go, well, you know, uh, I would politely say that city council is tasked with making decisions that, in their view, are in the best interest of the city and the citizens. And sometimes that'll be of benefit to the fire department, and sometimes it may not directly benefit the fire department, and sometimes we may think it adversely impacts the fire department. But if we understand and accept and acknowledge that city council is making this decision that's in the best interest of the city, we can all understand that they're coming from a place of good intent. It's easy for you and I to sit here and be like, Rob, that's the dumbest answer ever. You're not allowed to talk as a rookie. Uh, and everyone listening goes, you know, what the hell is Rob talking about? Ricky should be talking like that. What's wrong with him? But we have this culture that says, you know, rookies aren't allowed to have an opinion. But the problem that I have is if I'm not allowed to have an opinion, why'd you ask me? If you don't want to hear my opinion, don't ask me. And also, if I'm part of the crew and part of the team, how come I'm not allowed in this room when the rest of the crew is? It's not what a crew or a team does. And I understand, I totally understand how the rookie has to earn their place. And the rookie has to show that they want to be there and that they're going to earn every ounce of it. But it just doesn't line up with my personal views of how a team and a crew should operate. So, of course, you know, I'm 21, 22 years old. I give that answer. And I don't realize that's a bad answer until after the interview when they say, we're doing so well and now you're out. Thornton, the one question I bombed, they asked me an EMS question where, you know, hey, you're a rookie and you're treating the patient. Your lieutenant says you should be doing it this way. You know, what do you do? And I try to think of every loophole possible. And they're like, nope, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. And eventually I'm like, well, I, you know, I, I guess he's the lieutenant, so we'll do what he says. And no, Rob, with EMS protocols, if you're the lead person treating the patient, you're in charge of the patient, even if you're a rookie. So it bumped me down a few points. So Thornton was doing this big hiring group at the time because they were re-implementing their ALS transport ambulances with firefighters on ambulances. So they were hiring like 22 guys. And so, of course, you know, that question bumps me down. I finished like number 23 or 24, somewhere in there. But the silver lining was, you know, you take those 22 guys off the top, I'm now sitting at like number one, number two. And so that's why, uh, like within a couple of days of that academy starting, they had a couple of guys drop out for whatever reasons. And that's why they gave me the phone call and said, hey, how quick can you start? Then the calculation of, you know what, by the time he's done with background medical checks, uh, you're going to be a few weeks behind the rest of the class. So we're going to run a smaller academy in the fall for you and this other guy that we're hiring. And so through it all, I think I tested a total of four times with three different departments. There was one department I tested twice with one of their neighboring departments that, again, one of those answers of, well, if you don't want my opinion, don't ask me. You know, <laughs> they just took me off the list. <laughs> so then what was recruit class like? It was both great and terrible. It's me and another guy for Thornton, and then three from another neighboring department. And those three guys that got hired, they were already volunteers with that organization, and now they just got offers as full-time career guys. So they know all the ins and outs of their department. They already know the policies. They already have however many years of experience with that particular organization as volunteers. And so me at the time, I had 18 months of volunteer experience, and the other guy they hired came from out of state, but he had three years on paid with another department in another state before wanting to come out to Colorado. So all five of us already had all of the certs that we would need. And we all had, I think I was the least experienced at 18 months, but I also had 
pretty much every Saturday for the last 18 months, I was playing with fire. Even though in a burn building setting, I had a pretty decent amount of fire suppression experience for a new recruit. So they'd elected between the two departments, the academy was only going to be five weeks long. And it was just going to be to verify that we were competent and to teach us a North Washington way of doing things so that we'd be ready to go once we were done. So the instructors that each department provided, I would come to learn pretty laid back guys. None of them were real drill sergeants. So it makes it easier and also disappointing. I didn't have to go through a lot of those demanding physical rites of passages that a lot of other firefighters do in their rookie academy. And from that aspect, I wish it had been harder. I'm down to go through the same shit that everyone else has to go through. And I don't want to be viewed as some guy who got off easy and didn't have to go through those same things. But, you know, the nice part with it only being five of us and all of us having all the certs we need and the neighboring department had a class A burn building at the time, they still do, every day was live burns. So we might have an hour or two in the morning of, did you read these chapters? Let's ask you a couple JPR related questions about building construction or fire attack or this or that. And we're going out, we're burning all day. So this department, for scenario one, you're the attack crew, the other department, you're the search and rescue crew, and we hit a dummy victim somewhere in the building. You got to go find them. And after that scenario, switch. And it was nonstop for eight hours every day for five weeks, where the previous academy that just had, you know, 20 guys graduate, they might get a scenario or two in a day being on an attack line and blowing water and putting out fire or doing a search because how are we going to get 20 guys in on each rotation? Well, we're not because 10 of them are going to be rehab and bottle swaps. So with us, it was eight hours nonstop, go, 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 go. And so it was super physically taxing. But, you know, how many other recruits can say that 90% of their academy was live burns? It was awesome. And the only days that weren't live burns, we were doing extrication or technical rescue, repelling, and other hands-on training. So once we graduated, I think it was maybe the next day was my first day in the station. I started the week of Christmas. They had just re-implemented transport medic units. So overnight with that academy of 20, the line personnel went from 65 firefighters to 85, 90. We had five stations at the time minimum three-man staffing on an engine and two-man on a medic unit. So at a station that has a crew of five, three of those firefighters most likely were going to be rookies. And the engineer or the driver operator might have two years on. And the lieutenant, the company officer, maybe they're a 25 or 30-year guy, maybe they're a five-year guy. And so quite simply, in a nutshell, what happened is the line leadership that did exist prior to that kind of overnight flip the switch with the medic units, the leadership was overwhelmed. It's difficult, if not impossible, for one lieutenant to be able to mentor three rookies on their crew at the same time, especially if the engineer isn't someone with enough experience to do the same thing. The engineer might be only a year or two removed from being a rookie themselves, so they just couldn't mentor that many people at once. So in hindsight, there was a lot of firefighter culture and firefighter tradition that I missed out on. I'm not saying this in a derogatory sense, but you're taking what's essentially a good old boy department where everyone knows each other to a legit medium-sized suburban department kind of overnight. So a lot of the 22 rookies that came on in 2004 weren't really getting adequately mentored or at least what most people will consider adequately mentoring a rookie. A lot of that just wasn't going on because there just wasn't enough time and enough people to make that happen. So you talked earlier about brotherhood, but there's also some other thoughts you have on it. So talk to me about that. So... I feel like brotherhood is one of the best aspects of the fire service. There's not too many other industries, at least that I'm aware of, that value brotherhood and camaraderie quite like the fire service. But in my experience, I feel like most of the guys always seem to have a different definition of what brotherhood is. And to some firefighters, brotherhood is only the guys who think and act like them. 
And to me, that's no different than a high school clique. You're essentially creating a private club and you're excluding anyone that you don't like because they don't look like you or act like you or talk like you or any of that stuff. And that's somewhat disappointing to me. We're all adults. And the guys that beat the Brotherhood drum, they love to brag about the oath they took to be there for others. But you're there for others. How are you excluding your own brothers and sisters and saying, oh, yeah, he's not my brother. She's not my brother or sister. And those are just T-shirt firefighters to me. Wearing the T-shirt and letting other people know that you're a firefighter is more important than what you're actually doing. It's an image thing to them. And the other one that makes me scratch my head is guys that say, oh, you know, that guy over there, that guy that's a slug or he's not as much into the job as I think he should be. You know, he's no brother of mine. No, they're absolutely your brother. You had a chance to pick and choose your family in the testing process, the interview process, and the academy, and the probationary year, and this person made it through all of that. They're your brother now. And so, again, how are you going to beat that drum but pick and choose who you exclude? So, for me, it's kind of been those guys that are checked out and those guys that are kind of sour on the job and not as into it as I think they should be or as we think they should be. Put him on my crew and let's get him back into the job. Let's remind him why this is the greatest job in the world. Don't write him off because doing that's not brotherhood. My sisters and I, once we kind of hit five, six, seven years old, you know, we had problems and we did not like each other growing up and all the way through high school. But today we're in a better spot. We still have problems today, but it's fine. We're family and we may go at it behind closed doors, yelling and screaming at each other over seemingly petty stuff, but something happens to them in public, I'm the first one that's going to step up for them. You don't get to screw with my family. And the same goes for the fire service. That animosity and that tension that can exist at the kitchen table, that all ends when the tones drop and we're all brothers. And, you know, we go out there and if one of them gets in trouble or one of them says something stupid, I'll stand up for them. That's brotherhood. And there's one other aspect of it that kind of bugs me. And it's the guys that say that I got you, brother, I'll cover for you on this one. That's not real brotherhood either. Covering up for someone isn't brotherhood. Brotherhood is me making a promise to you and giving you the confidence of knowing that I'm never going to ask you to lie for me. I'm never going to ask you to cover up for me because if I'm going to screw up or if I'm doing something wrong or I did something bad, I promise to you that I'm going to own it. And you're not going to have to point the finger at me because I'm going to take accountability for it before they ever ask you. You're never going to have to put your career at risk to cover up my mistake. Building off of brotherhood, are there any traditions that we should continue to carry on? And are there any that we should evolve out of? The traditions is another one of the amazing aspects of the fire service from the apparatus role in ceremonies, the promotion ceremonies, the retirement ceremonies. Hopefully we don't have to be a part of too many of them, but the funeral processions and the ceremonies that go along with that are all just absolutely amazing and awe-inspiring. But when we get guys that are, again, beating like a tradition drum and we have to hold on to this, we can't let go of this, we at least need to have a conversation and acknowledge that all of our equipment and all of our policies exist. They're written in blood. We have these things and we have these directions because people have died. That's why we have SCBAs and bunker gear that continually improves. And that's why we have seatbelts and vehicles. These are all things that have evolved to improve safety and efficiency, whether in the fire service or elsewhere, that we can easily say, oh, I'm not wearing an air pack because that's not tradition. I've sat through a couple presentations of departments in the 21st century that if you wore an air pack, you were blacklisted. Just these jaw-dropping traditions that some departments have. So we at least need to acknowledge and respect that technology, safety, and equipment advances are in and of themselves are a part of the tradition of the fire service. And we need to acknowledge when we're doing something that is archaic and dangerous. But as far as station or house traditions go, Thornton has a handful of them that are awesome that are you know, all amongst the guys. And I'm sure they're not unique, but they're still fun. If you're ever caught on the news, on TV, anything like that, and you're identifiable, you owe uh, 
some sort of pie or ice cream penalty to the first guy that sees you. We had a guy at a Colorado Rockies baseball game four or five years ago, and I happened to be watching it at home. <laughs> it was either before or just after a commercial break. They're showing the fans in the stands, and they just zoom in on him for whatever reason, and he's completely oblivious to it. And after about five, ten seconds, he's still on camera, and you can see him kind of flinch and reach into his pocket and look at his phone and then look up right at the camera. And I think they had to cut away before the F-bomb was visible <laughs> on TV. But the guys were texting immediately, gotcha. You're on this channel or that channel. So that's always been kind of fun. And if you work an overtime shift, you owe a dessert to the crew that you're working with. We had one. It was kind of convoluted or vague for a while that I think we've evolved into a better spot. But we do something nice for the rookie after their first fire. You know, a nice dessert, cake and ice cream, go out to get dessert, something like that, just to treat them for their first fire. And things like that are awesome. And we absolutely need to hold on to them. One thing I think we need to change, though, is how we treat our rookies generally. And it can be a very unpopular opinion, but, you know, like it or not, these guys from day one in the station, they're responsible for your life and your family's well-being from the moment they walk in the door. So if we're constantly shitting on them and treating them like second-class citizens, that's detrimental to what we do. And the way things are trending now, we're not hiring 18 and 20-year-old rookies with zero experience. We're hiring guys that had a life before the fire service. Whether they shifted gears and, and went something completely different from what they were doing into fire or they were kind of building a resume all along to get into fire, we've hired guys that are licensed plumbers, architects, electricians, former military, and we've even got a guy on our department now. He's got our World Series ring. We need to learn who these guys are and ask them to share their story with us because they all have something to offer. We've got a number of guys that are former special forces. You think the special forces guys and this baseball player with a World Series ring, like they can teach us a thing or two about teamwork and brotherhood collectively. For us to say the rookie's not allowed to speak unless spoken to, and even then we don't want to hear it. And the attitude of they have to earn their spot and they have to prove they want to be here. We all have to earn our spot every day. And we all have to prove we want to be here every day. And this guy proved he was ready to be here and wanted to be here during the academy. And the cadre of the academy that we trust is telling us this guy or this girl, they passed the test and they're worthy of protecting your life and sending you home to your family after the shift. And we should be embracing the new teammates. And yeah, there's rites of passage and then they have to earn their spot, but they have to earn their spot every day, just like I do. Put them through the paces, but I'm going to go through those paces with you. And I should never be telling them to do anything that I'm not willing or able to do myself. So if we're so competitive and team oriented, you know, start proving it. Clean the toilets before the rookie can. See if you can get the hose reloaded before the rookie notices. Demonstrate that we're all on the same level. We might have a bugle or two on our bag or not, but this is a team game and we're going to behave like a team. We're all in the same boat together. Yeah, it's got to be confusing to have to prove yourself in the process and then suddenly be told that you don't have anything to say. Absolutely. Most of the time it's a 16-week academy and then what do we generally tell them as soon as they walk into the station? You know, forget everything you learn. We're going to show you how we do it. <laughs> we're not doing something right if we're telling them to forget everything and what they learn doesn't apply. Don't treat them like that. These guys want to be here. Prove to them that you want to be there as well. Yeah, I guess it's not their fault that there's a disconnect between the front line and their training division and how they do things. I think we all understand that the training division, to some extent, has to, especially when multiple departments are involved with like a regional or a consortium academy, some of the things we have to teach may be vague or generic, and there's some finer intricacies once they get to their specific engine or truck or department. But they have proven themselves. They've proven that they're capable. They've proven that they're qualified. You know, our representatives in the academy, they've signed off on them. So let's go play. Let's go have fun. Let's do it. We're not going to treat you like shit. And perhaps it's better to let them know that they need to learn what's inside the box before they play outside the box. 
Exactly. Also, I've made sure I let rookies that come to our crew know that their eyes and ears on the fireground as well. So we don't want to steal their voice or their mind or their eyes away from them because we need them. There may be things that we don't see. So at least speak up and say it. Maybe we have already seen it, but at least say something. I've tried to hammer that into my rookies and also into the classes I teach. When Dave was teaching, he would generally say this is a company officer class for those guys implementing IAPs. And I've kind of evolved it to say this is everything from rookies to chief officers. And that rookie that might be stretching the hose line while I'm doing the 360, like you also need to read the smoke, read the building, read the risk, read the weather. And if your math adding that all up doesn't equate to what I'm saying we're going to do, you need to speak up. It's not a you're able to speak up or I may tolerate your opinion on this, but if I'm saying we're going aggressive offensive through this entrance to the second floor, Charlie's side, you know, closer to Delta, and you're saying, you know what, this rate of change is obscene. We're looking at imminent flashover. Did you notice this? They better bring that up. And they need to understand that I'm going to hold them accountable if they don't. They need to have a voice. These guys are idiots. They're smart. There was a I can't remember what class it was. It was a long time ago, but they talked about rookies briefly and they said, you know, who has the most up-to-date information and technology available to them? I'm a guy that just got out of the academy. Who's got the most up-to-date tactics and policies education-wise? Well, the rookie that just got out of the academy. Who's most likely in the best physical shape? Well, the rookie who just got out of the academy. You know, these guys are assets. We need to treat them as such. Yeah, and the most dangerous thing would be for them to think, well, I'm sure they see it or I'm sure they know what they're doing. Yeah, that line, assumption is the mother of all fuck-ups, is also true in the fire service. Are there any calls that you think would be useful for people to hear? A couple calls where I have been humbled or got an on-the-fly education. There was one time, I think I had probably two or three years on it as a lieutenant at this point, and around nine at night, we get a structure fire towing to our first due area, and we're getting the reports of multiple calls coming in. It's a working fire on a house under renovation. The house is occupied, but they're putting an addition onto it. Part of that addition catches fire. It's up in the attic space above us. Pretty well-involved attic fire. High-fiving each other, patting ourselves on the back after. Clean up, get everything back in service, go to bed. And like two or three hours later, we get a structured fire to like a block and a half away. And again, multiple calls coming in. And so we're going, oh man, this is awesome. You know, two jobs in one night. And dispatch starts saying, so the RP is calling from this address. They're saying the fire is about a block and a half away, possibly on Oak Street, which is where the previous fire was. And the engine just falls silent, and I'm sitting up in front going, I swear to God, if it's the same house and it's a rekindle, like, I'm going to be so angry. And, and this time the fire is even bigger and brighter, and the plume of smoke is bigger. And it's the same house. It turned out the house had multiple roofs, and we left at least something smoldering somewhere in between two roofs that we couldn't see either with the naked eye or well enough on a tick. I've never dropped an F-bomb so many times in 30 minutes of my life <laughs> and, you know, just so angry and so embarrassed and just kicking myself. And, and as we came out after the fire's out, one of my firefighters looks at the crowd who's gathered across the street and goes, oh, dude, that guy over there, uh, he works for Aurora Fire. I was in paramedic school with him and he's sitting there filming <laughs> like, oh, God, all of Aurora Fire is going to think that we're terrible. And so my firefighter goes over and, and chats with him and he, he comes back and he goes, dude, that guy's so down to earth. He's so cool. Like, kind of sheepishly you know, acknowledged, oh yeah, this is a rekindle. And he, he rolls his eyes and he goes, man, there's two types of firefighters. There's firefighters who have had a rekindle and firefighters who haven't had a rekindle yet. It's fine. You guys weren't negligent. You guys didn't intentionally leave it burning. So it developed a lot of humility for me as an officer. 
number one, take some extra time to do overhaul. Even if that arson investigator is yelling at you for screwing up his evidence, I'd rather screw up a little of your evidence than come back and fight a bigger fire in a couple hours to see someone else from a neighboring department. And you always want to look good in front of them. And even they're saying, you guys are good. Don't worry about it. There's no ego here. That meant a lot. And so I try and carry myself with that, both in the station and you know, on calls and also on teaching that you know every firefighter is doing the best that they can to the ability that they've been trained with the resources they have. I guess the other call that I still remember was before I got promoted. I was still a firefighter. I was driving one of our medic units and we had dispatched around seven or eight in the evening to a uh, four or five-year-old girl that wasn't breathing. And we did everything we could and they pronounced her in the emergency room. But the family actually stopped by the station the next week when we were there and told us that the coroner had told them that she had a very rare genetic condition that had gone undiagnosed. If it had been diagnosed, she would have been living in the hospital waiting for a double lung and a heart transplant. So they were happy that she got to live a normal life. And when she did go unconscious, she was surrounded by friends and family. They were having a family barbecue. And it felt terrible that a light like that was extinguished, but it was just reinforcement of you never go to bed angry. You never go to work on bad terms with anyone that you love because you never know when something's going to happen, even to a seemingly healthy child. So even if it infuriates my wife, we're not going to bed angry. I'm going to keep you up and we're going to hash this out. (laughs) So that one has always stuck with me as well. Building off of that, what's your take on physical and health setbacks in your lifetime? Have you had any? Have you witnessed other people have some? How have they managed? How have you managed? I've been extremely fortunate on the physical side. I've never had an injury that has kept me home for a day or longer. And I know I've been lucky because I've watched guys at work uh, who have blown out ACLs. They've ruptured Achilles. They've ruptured quadriceps muscles, back injuries that, you know, for a long time, we didn't even know if they were going to be able to come back. Watch one guy when they were just playing wiffle ball, dislocated his hip. And that ended up resulting in a medical retirement. He reached his maximum medical improvement, I think is what the doctors call it. And it wasn't enough for him to get cleared to come back. So I've been extremely fortunate on the physical side. And I try and respect that by exercising constantly, you know, seven days a week, cardio and weights and staying in shape. On the mental side, probably three, four years ago, we started up the peer support team. And our neighboring department started as well. So their peer support guys and our peer support guys also part of a regional team. And when they said, oh, this is what it is and this is what we're going to do with it, I was skeptical at first. Like, why do I want to talk to this guy who I know after a bad call and who's determining when it's a bad call? But it's turned out to actually be really awesome. What they've basically told us is after a rough call, whatever it might be, you're sitting there alone in the mud and we're not qualified from a mental health standpoint to pull you out. But we are going to let you know that we'll sit in the mud next to you so that you know you're not alone. And that's actually been really helpful for a lot of the guys. I can't think of anyone that has said that a peer support meeting or review after a call was worthless and pointless and that they didn't get something out of it. So it's been very beneficial from that aspect. As far as my personal mental health, I'm just about 18 years in the fire service now. I'm not emotionally or or mentally affected by any call that I've had. There's calls that I remember and there's calls that are screwed up and yeah, that was messed up. But in the end, I've always looked at it as, well, it wasn't my emergency and it wasn't my family member and it's a tragic call and I'll learn what I can from it, but it doesn't bother me. And after 18 years, I'm kind of at the point where seeing how the fire service has been able to bring mental health to the forefront and it's an ongoing mission, but don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to raise your hand for help. Now I'm getting to the point where I'm like, am I fucked up because I don't get fucked up? 
you know, I, because I don't have a drinking problem and I don't have PTSD, does that make me some sort of a psychopath? And should that be something of concern as well? Like, what's wrong with me that these tragic calls that I feel they're not affecting me? And about a year or two ago, sat through a class on PTSD. And the instructor is not a psychiatrist, psychologist, anything like that, but they did pull up a slide saying, generally when they evaluate you, there's nine key symptoms that go into play to diagnosing someone with PTSD. And, you know, immediately start reading down the list and realize that I've got like six or seven of them. And I don't really have night terrors or flashbacks or anything like that. But, you know, a lot of the other symptoms, sometimes like mild bouts of insomnia where you wake up and you're wide awake in the middle of the night. Like I'll get those occasionally. Do you get mood swings? Oh, yeah, we all kind of get mood swings, don't we? And, you know, all these other things that seem so minor and mutually exclusive. And it's like, oh, that doesn't mean I do have PTSD or, or I guess they're tinkering with a new diagnosis of accumulated stress disorder where it's not one specific incident. It's 5, 10, 20 years of little things that pile up. It both made me feel better that, hey, maybe I am kind of normal because I do have those things. And it made me feel worse. You know what? Maybe I do need to take a more active role in my mental health and maybe start sitting down with someone. But if I'm being honest, it hasn't really physically affected me that I can tell. And I don't know that it's emotionally affected me, but I've never sat down with anyone to talk about it. And I keep saying I should just to, just to feel good about it and see what happens from it. But I've just never gotten around to it yet. Yeah, I came to a point where I realized that I went to all these other professionals for things that I needed. I go to my doctor, I go to my dentist, I go to a chiropractor, I go to a massage therapist because they're professionals and they know more about these body systems and can help me fix them or maintain them. So I approach going to a counselor the same way. The brain's a complicated thing. I don't think I can figure it all out on my own. My thoughts exactly. We do these preventive appointments for just about everything else, but we're not really doing them for mental health. And, and we're, you know, we might not be in a financial position too, and I understand that, but it's still a very important thing to take care of and to keep healthy. Yeah, it's frustrating when the resource is there and it is covered and people still don't make use of it. Yeah. What are some of the challenges you see facing the fire service today? And do you see any ways through them? Through my experiences, I'm now at a point when I laugh, when I hear anyone at the table or anyone in the class saying it's the generational differences and we got to figure out how to deal with the millennials and we got to figure out how to deal with the Generation Y guys because A, my light bulb moment, I figured it out <laughs> and I, I try and share that as often as I can. But also, hasn't every older group said that about every younger group throughout all of history that, you know, these darn kids, they don't know a thing, they don't respect a thing. And, you know, then 10, 20 years, we grow up and we're the adults bashing the kids. So that's never going to stop. It's not unique to firefighting. As far as challenges go, I think in my experience, when we look at the types of building construction and the furnishings going on today and the fire growth rate and the heat release rate, the stored energy within all these new fuels, it's just absolutely obscene. And there's nothing to suggest that we're going to trend backwards to more old school methods of construction. We're not building on site. We're assembling on site now because it's quicker, it's cheaper, it's more efficient, and that's not going to go away. So all these new houses that they're building now and, and they're fine, you know, how are those things going to be when they're 50 years old, 60, 70, 100 years old? They're going to go up quick. In fact, right now I'm working on adding in some research into the Reading Smoke program on gray foam insulation. There's been a few fires around the country recently, typically office buildings or high-rise apartments under construction, where either during or after the application of spray foam insulation, you know, something caught fire. And the heat release rate and spread rate of spray foam compared to the traditional fiberglass insulation is absolutely obscene. You're getting cars two blocks away that are getting their paint bubbled 
due to radiant heat damage from these buildings when they're on fire. And there's been a number of really high profile ones, even a few overseas that have made news here because of how devastating they are. And let's be honest, how impressive they look on TV. So um, whenever you're watching those home renovation shows, when they put insulation back in, you know, it's always spray foam insulation now. So it's not just the commercial buildings and the high-rise buildings, it's everywhere. So that's another threat coming. And I think we're at a point now where over the last 20, 30 years, we can safely assume that all these innovations that are going to come out are not going to be innovations that are going to make fires less intense or, or prevent them altogether. It's all these things that are awesome and they're effective and they're cheap and they're sustainable and you know all these things as long as they're not on fire. Once they're on fire, they're somehow imminently more dangerous than what we're used to. But the bottom line is that Our biggest challenge, I think, as a fire service, we need to stay on top of societal trends with building construction, furnishings, occupancy types. You know, now we're seeing type five high-rises, the high-rise stick-built buildings. And we need to make sure that they're not getting too far ahead of us with their construction. And then we're able to catch up, number one, with the fire codes, and number two, with our identification and, and strategy and tactics. The answer of, well, that's how we've always done it. You know, that's one of those terms we need to get rid of. What's your take on social media in the fire service? It is both the best and worst thing that has ever happened, (laughs) or at least in the last 15 years. Um, The ability to get on a social media platform and instantly connect and communicate with firefighters from all over the world is unbelievable. We can share videos, we can share pictures, we can get feedback, we can get input, we can get answers, we can get ideas, and that's all awesome. And then there's the other side of it where we can be trolls and we can be douchebags and we can question someone's manhood and their tactics and their abilities and their brotherhood and all that stuff. And so... One of the ground rules for my classes is we're not going to judge any of the tactics of any of the firefighters that we see in any of these videos because they're all doing the best they can with what they've got now they've been trained. So it's not their fault. If you go look at videos on YouTube or Facebook or any other video platform out there that shows initial attack or something like that, and you look at the comments section, it's typically some level of a dumpster fire. These armchair quarterbacks saying, oh, they should have done this or they should have done that, and it doesn't help. We're so proud of you. We're so in awe of what a great know-it-all firefighter you are, but you're not helping anything and you're not providing any useful feedback. You're just bashing people. Again, those are just t-shirt firefighters, guys that just need to let people know, why fight what you fear and all those cliche sayings. You're not helping. Let me uh, finish off with you with some standard questions. Okay. Shared dorms or separate rooms? (laughs) I know the popular thing is to say shared dorms, but I'm a separate room type of guy. That's not a knock on anyone that I've ever worked with or anything, but the snoring, the indigestion, the gastrointestinal issues, I don't want those to have to keep me up and make me lose sleep. And if I have them, I don't want to keep you guys up. Plus, sometimes even just from a mental health aspect, it's team, team, team all day long. Every once in a while, it's nice to have an hour, even during the day or whatever, to yourself to just decompress, unwind alone. So I personally like the separate rooms. Eat together or everyone for themselves? I actually can't comprehend crews that don't eat together. And if someone's on a special diet, I get it. But the crews that I've been a part of, you know, if some guy comes in and says, hey, I'm going keto and I'm going to bring my own food in, it's like, well, you know, we're not going to mandate what you can and can't do. But I'm totally down with for the 48 hours that we're here, let's do keto meals and let's try and keep this as team oriented as possible. You know, if some guy's vegetarian or vegan, we're still going to have meat, but let's keep the meat separate. And that way we can have our meat, but still have the same meal together. And let's try and find a way to make this work out. 
But if there's someone who truly does not want to eat what the crew is having and the crew isn't willing to budge and, you know, meet in the middle anywhere, hopefully we're at least preparing and eating at the table together and not, you know, taking meals to separate rooms and eating separately. And, you know, we need to be together. The kitchen table is the centerpiece of the firehouse. That's where we get business fixed. Crew workouts or solo? I think I probably missed my calling. I probably should have gone to law school and been a lawyer. You know, when I get questions like that, it's always like, well, how big is the gym and how big is the crew? But bottom line, I like working out with the crew. And we don't have to be doing the same workout together. You know, we don't have to all be on a certain circuit. My crew, we're all in the gym at the same time, whether it's morning or afternoon, to lift together. And we do different programs. We're all on different plans for lifting, but we're always together. And I've actually, without prompting and and without specifically discussing it, I've watched guys on my crew, I guess you would say, enthusiastically discuss with other people about what that demonstrates to the crew. If you see the crew working out together, you're getting confidence in, hey, this guy is working out to be in better shape so that he can pull me out of a burning building. We can accomplish the mission faster, and that builds trust amongst each other. Even if we're not all benching you know, 400 pounds, we're all in there trying to get better at the same time, and, and that means a lot and demonstrates a lot to everyone. What's your thoughts on acronyms? They have their place, but there's so many of them. And we just abuse and overuse the shit out of them. Like whenever you pop online and someone says VES, and then immediately someone corrects them and says VEIS. It's the same fucking thing. The guys who say VES aren't saying, don't you dare shut that door and isolate. But I feel like we're constantly trying to reinvent the wheel and constantly trying to put a new spin on things to make it something new, and it's not. And there's nothing wrong with the old thing. It just muddies the water every time we try and come up with a new acronym or a different acronym or add three letters or take a letter away. It's, it's the same thing. It's the same concept. Teach the concept. Teach the why. You're too worried about the what. Given your understanding of the why through the Reading Smoke program, well, I guess in everything you approach, are you a smoothbore nozzle guy or a fog? <laughs> Somehow, if I don't bring it up, it typically gets brought up in every class one way or the other. Smoothbores or fog nozzles, you know, what do you recommend based on the science? And I'm a believer that If one nozzle was inherently better than the other, then the other would not exist. So each has its place, each has its pros and its cons. I've had fog nozzles my entire life and not necessarily by choice. That's just, this is what we've had. And we've finally gotten to a point where, because I've always said, why do we have fog nozzles and why don't we have smooth bores? I'm not challenging you. I just want to understand. And I think enough of the guys who have said, because that's what we've always had, have finally retired, that the next wave, the younger generation, we now have a hose and nozzle committee. And I think this year they're going to start doing testing between brands, between styles and, and everything to see which one's going to work better for us. And that's what's important is, is you do you. If you're a smoothbore guy, what's important is getting water on the fire, cooling the box as you make your way to the seat and putting out the fire. And if you're a fog nozzle guy, What's important is cooling the box as you progress to the seat of the fire and putting out the fire. End of the day, that's what we need to accomplish. And your efficiency is going to be dependent on your resources, your training, your capabilities, your staffing, all of that. And so it's impossible to say this one's better than that one. So I've only ever used fogs, but for at least the last 12, 13 years, it's you need to put it on a straight stream because of how the heat behaves, how the smoke behaves, how the fire behaves. So for me personally, I'm at a point where, okay, well, the, the fog nozzle now works for hydraulic ventilation and maybe a couple of other things. The smoothbore has a lot less moving parts and you're really only a, a bale and a ball. Let's at least take a look at it and see what works best for us. And that's what every department needs to do. And if they're all in on smoothbores, I support it. If they're all in on fog nozzles, I support it. You do what works for you. What's your take on the two and a half inch line, interior, exterior, or both? 
I think if you say it's only good for interior or it's only good for exterior, you're limiting its effectiveness. There's a time and place for everything. And Thornton has a minimum three-man staffing on engines and trucks. So if we're first due to a fire and I judge that an inch and three-quarter ain't going to cut it based on my size up, can we deploy a two and a half? Absolutely. But with first due, if I have an engineer at the pump panel and it's me and a firefighter on the hose, can we effectively maneuver a two and a half through this building by ourselves? Probably not. Would it be easier with a four-man engine? Absolutely. You know, it's different for every department. There's other departments that don't have inch three-quarter pre-connects. They have staffing that they're taking in two and a half, and that's all they do because it's more water, and more water is never a bad thing. Realistically, you can always find an exception, but realistically, it's never a bad thing. So, yes, the short answer is both. It should be an interior line and an exterior line, and let the fire and, and your capabilities dictate which line you pull. Do you have a preference between truck, engine, and rescue? I'm engine guy all day, every day, and I'll be a, a hose monkey for life. I like putting out fire. And uh, John Bailey, one of my mentors, who's currently with the department, he has a line that he shares that says, you know, basically most of the fires we go on, there's one guy that gets to have fun, and that's the guy on the nozzle. And the rest of us are just there to support him and help him have fun. You know, that's a gross oversimplification, but essentially we all understand that everyone and every assignment plays a role in accomplishing the mission, but it's the guy on the nozzle that gets to have the most fun at every fire. So as a company officer now, if I wind up on the nozzle, something went wrong, but I still like being on the hose line. And so the truckies and the heavy rescue guys are just as important as the engine guys to making sure that the fire gets put out and that the thing gets accomplished safely. But, you know, if we're having a beer, there's firefighters and then there's firefighter helpers as far as I'm concerned. I just like engine work more than truck and rescue work. What's the best way for people to access the Art of Reading Smoke program and access you if they want to reach out? The easiest way is probably through Facebook. I have both a personal page and the consulting business I have, uh, First Due Intelligence, has a page as well. Either one of those would probably be easiest. They can email me anytime. It's robbacker.fei, the First Due Intelligence, at gmail.com. And I'm also on Instagram and Twitter with First Due Intelligence handles. And I reply back pretty quickly because I'm kind of a smoke nerd at this point. I, I enjoy it. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap things up? You know, I, I think you picked my brain. <laughs> I, uh, this has been an honor. It's been very humbling, and I appreciate the opportunity that you've given me. It's, it's been fun to talk shop. Oh, it's been an opportunity for me, too. You were saying that you're really not into podcasts. I'm wondering if this will be your intro to the world. It absolutely has been from a listener standpoint. I've been listening to your podcast, and what's been awesome about multiple calls is I listen with great interest on the Aaron Fields episode because it's not Aaron Fields teaching Nozzle Forward. It's Aaron Fields talking about who he is and how he grew up to be who he is, and same with Jake Hoffman as well. And so it's been awesome to get to know people on a deeper level than just what you see at the front of the classroom or, or on the YouTube video. Well, it's a privilege for me to be the medium for people to get access to that side of you too because i'm sure people want to know yeah and thank you for doing that and, and keep it up it's it's awesome all right well we'll talk soon okay thank you much 